welcome to The Lover's Hole, a Patrick O'Brien podcast. You're with Ian. And this is Mike. And what are we all about, Mike? Well, Ian, we're reading through all 20 books of the Patrick O'Brien Aubrey Matron series. We've completed book one, Master and Commander, and book two, Post Captain. And today we're starting our discussion of book three. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. And if you've been following us, welcome back. It's good to have you with us. Welcome indeed. It's really great to have you with us, whoever you are and wherever you've come from. So Mike, this week we're starting on the third book in the canon. And for lots of people, we're settling into a pattern of knowing about Jack Aubrey and Stephen Maturin. How do you think HMS Surprise differs, if at all, from the first two books in the series? Well, in Surprise, I think it's shorter. The action comes faster. We leave the waters around the UK and the Mediterranean far behind and, and journey much further afield. It continues to be, like the first two books, much more than just a historical naval fiction novel. And Surprise dives even deeper into the lives of our characters on shore and at sea, but with a quicker pace and a bit more action. Uh, okay. So if you thought that Master and Commando was a little bit too much nautical detail and, and a little bit too much testosterone, and you thought that Post Captain was, on the other hand, maybe a little too much um, thinking and talking and character angst, maybe this is going to be the Goldilocks novel where Patrick O'Brien gets it just right. And we love Goldilocks, as as you call recall, that's the crew's <laughs> nickname for Jack Aubrey uh, on the Sophie in Master and Commander. Oh yeah! Oh yes, of course. Oh blimey, that was that was a complete accident. <laughs> Goldilocks by name, Goldilocks by nature in his third novel. There you go. Well, it's interesting. Some people say Post Captain is kind of a litany of Jack's mistakes, his mistakes and what happens and the result of it, and that in surprise, we follow many of Stephen's mistakes and the results of those mistakes. So one of the things that we did to evaluate where we are and get a fresh take was to ask a friend of ours who is a Patrick O'Brien novice to take a fresh look at the first book, to take a fresh look at Master and Commander. So you're going to hear this week the conversation that we had, me and Mike, with our good friend, Jeremy Raymond. Yeah, one of the smartest friends that we have. Absolutely. And that's not saying very much. <laughs> Too true. So we're two books in to our reading of the Patrick O'Brien canon now. And we've approached this from what is probably the same perspective that most of you have, which is that we're fans of the books and that we're exploring nuances in the way that we love them. But we perhaps haven't tried very hard to look at the books critically. And Mike and I thought that maybe we could invite somebody to join us who until recently was new to the books, ask that person to take a read and maybe share a few thoughts with us. And our old friend and work colleague, Jeremy Raymond is with us. Please say hello, Jeremy. Hello. Hello, Mike. Hi, Ian. Hello. Hello. Welcome. And Jeremy, we've invited you to join us because you were a willing volunteer when I proposed, hey, why not read one of these books? You, you being a literary sort of fella um, and you being probably better read even than me and Mike and and ask for some thoughts. So just, just confirm for us that you're happy that that's a fair description. 
Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely that's uh, that's extremely generous. Um, <laughs> I wouldn't have said I was particularly well qualified to read uh, historical novels set in the Napoleonic um, period or or aboard on board a large ship, but I, I did enjoy it very much. Ah, fantastic! So we started here, I think, with Master and Commander. Is that right? Correct. You did. Yeah. So let, let's get straight into it. Um, as as a new reader to this kind of work, um, tell us what you thought. Well. Let me just say um, a little bit about my relationship with the sea first, because I think this does rather colour my view. In my view, the greatest naval achievement has been the construction of the Channel Tunnel, because I don't need to take the Channel Ferry 28 miles to go to France. So with that in mind, I kind of did, when I realised this was all about boats and ships and rigging and futtocks and, and all that, I did somewhat uh, hesitate after a few chapters but then when I got to know the character of Maturin, I did rather get to enjoy it. But I, I, see, I noticed I paid particular attention to his perspective. Mm. So there's a marvellous bit right at the beginning when he's taken on board the ship. Uh, and he says, a ship must be the most instructive theatre for an inquiring mind. And I thought, OK, right, that's got me hooked. He's the, he's the observer. They're the lab rats. Yeah. This is 1960s meets 1800 or whatever the date is. And uh, and then I started to really enjoy it because I really got into the characters. And I have to say, I skipped or dozed off a little bit when there was a naval battle going on, um, <laughs> which is probably what... And I asked a friend of mine who's a history scholar from Cambridge, had he read them and which did he like? And he said, oh, I just love the battles, he said. So, you know, it's, <laughs> you, you can take out of a book what you like. So I, yeah, so I, I really enjoyed all the characters. Mm-hmm. I, lo- I enjoyed all the comedy. I mean, I think there's quite a lot of sort of sly humour going on here, which I also enjoyed. Um, and I enjoy- it made me think about the whole genre of historical fiction, really, because um, at the same time as reading this, I was catching up on the two Hilary Mantel books prior to reading the enormous doorstop of a third volume of her trilogy mm. about Thomas Cromwell. Mm. And um, and I realised that really good historical novels, they sort of paint a picture through dialogue. And he does that um, really well, just as Hilary Mantel does, or, or Jane Austen come to that. There's not much real description. Every now and then there's a sort of bit of an eloquent description, but you really have to look hard to find something like, there's a bit here, I've just opened a book, it says... The sun worked upon the surface of the water, doing wonderful things to its colour, raising new mists, dissolving others, sending exquisite patterns of shadows among the taut lines of the rigging and the pure curves of the sails and down onto the white deck, now being scrubbed whiter to the steady grinding of holy stones. I mean, that's extremely rare in this book. Mm. Um, I think you really need a strong visual imagination to to enjoy the the kind of context of this although you don't when it comes to the characters very good that was my thought thank you and i want to come back to this that bit of very visual writing that you came up with i've got a sort of feeling that when he does become poetic or descriptive in the way that he writes he often talks about light um and i don't think there's a connection to the fact that he spent all of his life in a small town um on the on the southern coast of france popular with fauvist painters and maybe 
he had neighbors who talked to him a lot about the light or he particularly enjoyed the idea of light and the outdoors but it's often a way that he creates a scene or introduces a, a turning point in the story yeah it's true it's true and also he a lot of his adjectives i mean he loves words mm. you know flocky nooky nihili pilification i knew that word from the age of 12 but i've never <laughs> seen it in a book and he finds a way to introduce in sentences but most but he actually uses the word nacreous you know, mother of pearl-like about yeah. light, which again is a word you sort of get in crosswords, but you don't tend to find in books. Okay, let's pursue a hypothetical then. If it's not a novel, as you say, for the visually unimaginative, if there was another writer approaching some of the same setting and some of the same subject matter with more visual language and more description, how might that change the tone or the appeal of the books? I guess I'm politely asking, so what? Well, I think what it means is it makes them accessible to an audience who's not particularly interested or knowledgeable about the period. Okay. Um, I mean, Jane Austen is credited with the creation of the sort of dialogue novel, really. The first person to really take dialogue seriously. And as a result... Um, it all seems to be a lot of chat for people who loathe Jane Austen and people who like it love the kind of wry humour because yeah. uh, Patrick O'Brien does the same thing. She's very good at giving individual people a kind of voice that you get to know and get to hear. And he does the same. I mean, he's, his description of what Maturin looks like, for example, I, I don't really have any visual concept of what he looks like, but I sort of know what he is like yeah. um, from the way he particularly describes in his diary and it's sort of speaking to the reader you sort of know what he's like you know what he's passionate about and and you know how he can be very dispassionate so you get a knowledge of him through his voice and through the way he talks and I think all the characters to some extent do that I mean Marshall does it Aubrey does it yeah. um, Ricketts does it I think I think Dylan's the slightly disappointing one he doesn't seem to have such a clear voice anyway he kills him off so perhaps that's why <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to pick out another bit, if I may, because Please. there's a piece in Chapter 6 where um, he's writing in his diary um, and he's talking about the way in which time, in a way, changes uh, changes the way people's characters come across. Um, and he says, It has often seemed to me that towards this period, and this is the period referring to is... Um, a critical time. Men strike out their permanent characters or have these characters yeah. struck into them. Merriment, roaring high spirits before this, then some chance concatenation or some hidden predilection or rather inherent bias working through and a man is in the road he cannot leave but must go on, making it deeper and deeper, a groove or a channel, until he is lost in his mere character, persona, no longer human but an accretion of qualities belonging to this character. And he's saying this about James Dillon, how he becomes yeah. a sort of caricature of, of who he once was. Um, and then he goes on and says, it is odd. Will I say heartbreaking? How cheerfulness goes, gaiety of mind, natural mm. free-springing joy. Authority is its great enemy, the assumption of authority. I know few men over 50 who seem to me to be entirely human. <laughs> <laughs> I, is that, it's, I thought that was wonderful. Um, I just, uh, you know, it really, it really is. And you, that's what you get yeah. if you ignore the ringing and all that stuff, you know, which I did. <laughs> It's, it's funny, Jeremy, we've talked about that before, that, that those are the phrases, you know, the, the parts of the book that I live for. And I love hearing about the rigging. I, I actually listen to them a lot, but I can hear about it. And it's, you know, it's lovely words and I don't have to know anything about what it means. Yeah, I agree. It's a sort of it's a sort of white noise that gives you a kind of 
reassurance that he really knows what he's talking about. Because <laughs> I think if you write historical fiction, your first challenge is to persuade the historians, don't you think? And then having persuaded them to persuade the rest of us who, you know, kind of know a bit, but don't well, really... I'd... I think I, I think there's I think there's a huge part of the audience, myself included, that that loves the sort of nerdy connection between mm. what he's writing on the page and the world that he was writing ab- about and the context of it. And he's clearly done this immensely scholarly job of putting it all together. But it also sometimes occurs to me that maybe he's just very successfully made a world with an internally consistent set of rules and you know, and and contexts. Mm. And maybe we just do the same thing with those contexts that we do with, you know, science fiction. When Captain Kirk says, you know, the only way to destroy the enemy's cra- tractor beam is to reverse the polarity of the dilithium crystals. We don't go, oh, hang on a minute, what's a dilithium crystal? We just go, oh, okay. That's a thought of a, <laughs> some, something better than a MacGuffin, but it's something that the authors kind of created for us to sort of go, oh, oh there's some scenery going by. No, I think you're right. I think... Um... He does inhabit the world, you know, that he creates because he writes with such sort of fluency and confidence about all this. And so we we believe it because he believes it. You know, he's like he's like the salesman who knows his pitch inside out and who believes it. It's no longer a story that he tells. It is true. You know, this is what happened. That that I think is, as you say, is part of the massive amount of research that he must have done to do this. And he must have been a complete naval nut, mustn't he? Was he? Was anybody uh, naval among, amongst other kinds of, perhaps. <laughs> oh, other kinds of nut as well, was he? <laughs> well, I mean, to, to the extent he was very, you know, he lived this very kind of isolated life and he was, you know, scholarly not only, I think, about the naval history side, but obviously about zoology and botany and about literature. Mm-hmm. He's got references miles deep to classical literature and to, you know, philosophy and European culture. So I, that that speaks of a kind of mind <laughs> that's that's focused not not only on the naval history but on other other bits of scholarship as well. For sure, for sure, yes. I mean, he's he's massively impressive on that front. Yeah. And and what I like is that he wears it lightly, you know. Yeah. So unlike, well, uh, my example would be those Frederick Forsyth thriller novels about or Andy McNabb, you know, where yeah. the whole of the first three pages is some man dismembering a Kalashnikov, which every part of which has to be mentioned to make sure you know he really knows about Kalashnikovs. Right. Yeah. You don't get that impression with Patrick O'Brien. You do get the impression no. that he he just loves it. He just loves it all, and he sort of know, knows it. Um, but he doesn't mind if you ignore it. Actually, that's what I felt, which is quite nice. Mm-hmm. The other thing I would say about the books is, and, and, and I've talked about this with you, Ian. I do think the women get a pretty, sh- they get a pretty short shrift mm. in this book. Mrs. Hart, what is it he says about? She's a she's a marvelous character, especially the, the first meeting of her at the dinner party. But there, there's not much, not much of that to hang on, is there? Really? But then that's maybe again his audience. There aren't any women in Andy McNabb novels, or nor are there in well, Frederick Forsyth or the, James Bond or any of those. We, we we end up falling back on the oh well. If you read the ne- the next book, then you would see. And it is absolutely true that if you read the next book, um, there's some really really de- deeply well written, interesting, characterful female characters um, written about not only with more more to do in the in the story, but also a bit more charitably than than Molly Hart gets written about. And I don't know if that was a deliberate thing to say, I'll make the first one sort of testosterone heavy and then make the second one and subsequent ones more balanced. I think he was, I mean, it feels to me like his real interest is the relationship between the two principal characters yes. and the contra- the kind of contrasting worldview of the two of them. So yeah. 
the sort of intellectual observer meets the kind of lust for life, get, take everything you can kind of character of Aubrey. And the the fact that they become friends, the sort of bromance, as it were, between the two of them, yeah. I don't know if you'd really call it a bromance, but the fact that they get along so well, even though they're so different, I think that also intrigues him because they're there and maybe they sort of to some extent are complementary sides to his own character um mm. i don't know because i don't know anything about him but yeah. i definitely felt that the his the author's voice was much stronger in maturin than it was in aubrey because we don't get any at this book anyway we get very little introspection from aubrey i mean he's not he's not a particularly introspective character no. but we don't get much sense of what's going on in his head well, I, I was going to say we get more so when we step on to post captain. But to your to your point, Jerry, he's not very introspective to begin with. But what what there is, we start to see more of, and we see it deeply in Matron, which is what makes him so wonderfully fun to fall in love with. Absolutely, and Jeremy, I remember you saying to me at one point, you know, he seems to love both of the protagonists equally. Yes, I think that he loves Matron a little bit more, or at least projects more of his point of view through through Matron. But like you say, he, he, I think he aspires. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a virtue about Jack Aubrey that I think O'Brien maybe aspired to or admired, partly in himself and partly in others. I think it's always telling, too, who gets the best jokes. And Maturin, <laughs> I think, definitely gets the best jokes because that's usually a bit of a giveaway about, you know, yeah. who, who the, the author loves most. Um, that little bit I read before, there's a marvellous bit about when, you know, the effect of authority on, on middle-aged men. The senior post-captains here, Admiral Warren, shriveled men, shriveled in essence, not, alas, in belly. You know, that that kind of sort of rather sort of snarky remark. Yes. And there's another wonderful one about the size of the cabin, which was something to do with it. It would, it would fit you very well if you had a wooden leg or something. You know, the, the, it's the, all these kind of comments all get given to Maturin rather than Aubrey. Yeah. And every time Aubrey tries humour, it's a bit a bit forced and a bit inane and teenagerish, really. And 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 Aubrey doesn't have great jokes. As a matter of fact, his jokes are are little and they're poorly constructed, and he gets such glee out of them that <laughs> that everybody else can't help but laugh, looking at how gleeful Jack is. I think Dylan even makes that observation. You know, he he gets more humor out of the silliest, littlest things than anybody's ever seen in his life. Ian, what do you what do you make of their kind of shared interest in music? Then that's obviously a big bond, isn't it? It is a big bond, and O'Brien puts it into the first sentence. It was certainly a big part of what kept me going in the stories as well, having an interest in music myself. I, I think a little bit of it, he's using it to sort of place us in the time so we can make nice, you know, non-obvious cultural references to, to music that was going on. And he makes connections to secondary characters often through the music as well. You know, a, a character that we're meant to regard unsympathetically tends to be... Um, some, somebody like a, a marine or a you know a, a junior officer who plays the plays the flute badly you know that's one of the worst things that O'Brien can say about another character is that they play a musical instrument badly and he quite often uses so I think it's another chance for him to to give color to character it doesn't ever play a massive role in the plot but almost as often as at dinner parties are the are these two on shore at an evening of music or the opera or something. Yeah. The bon viveur aspect of this, you know, the big dinners, that that really features. Where he does go into overdrive on the descriptions is often to do with what people are eating. 
um, often in quite a humorous way, I would say, I would add, but I, I always enjoyed the meals. There's a marvellous description when they're, they're all invited to dinner by Dylan and how everybody then kind of couldn't speak. Here, everything he said was right, and presently his spirits began to sink under the burden. Marshall and Purser Rickett sat mum, saying please and thank you, eating with dreadful precision. Young Mowit, uh, a fellow guest, was altogether silent, of course. Dylan worked away at the small talk, but Stephen Maturin was sunk deep in reverie. New paragraph. It was the pig that saved this melancholy feast. <laughs> I, I love that. I love that. So I, I want to come back to the phrase that you used before, Jeremy. You talked about uh, the characters kind of being lab rats, that may, partly through the character of Maturin, we're sort of observing humanity. Do you think that went along with any of the sort of spirit of the time of the late 60s, or does it say something to us about the, the writer's take on people? Well, I, I think, and again, I don't know anything about his life, but if you think about, the, if this is written in 1969, if this 1969 hits 1800, you know, the, the talk was all of um, the importance of psychology, social psychology, um, and I think he, he either read about that or he was interested in that. For example, he's interested in the idea, their the reflection on identity, which Jack at one point raises, is completely, completely out of keeping with the period. Would my lollybolly boy pay the men back to their own coin? Would they return to their persecution of him? How quickly could he come by a new identity? Identity, said Jack, comfortably pouring out more coffee. Is not identity something you are born with? The identity I am thinking of is something that hovers between a man and the rest of the world, a midpoint between his view of himself and theirs of him, for each, of course, affects the other continually. A reciprocal fluxion, sir. There is nothing absolute about this identity of mine. Were you, personally, to spend some days in Spain at present, you would find yours change, you know, because of the general pinch opinion there that you are a false, harsh, brutal, murdering villain, an odious man. That is just absolutely 1960s interest, isn't it? <laughs> yes, absolutely. People as a part of a continuing sociological experiment um, and that you know, there's no such thing as destiny. We're all kind of pinging from situation to situation. I say that as if I've got a crystal clear recall of the 60s and, you know, modesty forbids, but... <laughs> the people of the period would... It would have been about class. It would have been yeah. about position. Uh, and the thought that you could make progress, even as uh, Jack aspires to, even that, I imagine, was pretty unusual, the sort of idea of social ambition. Um, mm. and, maybe, and that maybe was one of the reasons why the Navy is, a, is an interesting sort of environment, because it was presumably mm. one of the environments where you could start as a midship and you could end up as an admiral. Um, but in general, the society was massively constrained in terms of uh, social mobility. So the idea that identity was somehow fluid, I mean, I'm sure that was, that's just a 60s thought, honestly. Well, I, th I think um, the philosophy of you know, the liberty of the person and the idea of human nature were, were being written about in late 18th century philosophy. And I, every now and again in the later books, uh, Maturina and his conversation partners kind of go back to that. So I think he's trying to make a connection, but it absolutely is of, as you say, of O'Brien's time to be thinking about people in that way. Mm -hmm. um, you hear as well, I think, that 
there are some characters that really cling to the old order. I think Jack is a, is an agrarian old world Tory type who believes that there's sort of a settled nature to society. And Stephen's very anti that, especially if it gets you in the direction of authority. And O'Brien has a, a bit of a fondness for characters who have, as it were, risen through the ranks. So anybody that we hear about who's an officer or an admiral who's um, come, as they say, after the horse hole, gets a positive character picture. And as we've said, Mike, in the podcast, people who are privileged and born into their high position are often given the job of being either a bit of a twit or a bit malignant. Right. So so he's a he's in favor of social mobility. He believes in social mobility. Maybe he's even a socialist, who knows? But he's more he's much more left-wing than the time would allow, I guess, in in, in political terms. Uh, and perhaps he's more liberal socially in terms of his his views as well. I don't know. Uh, having only read one book, I'm a, it's it's quite hard to judge, but it's interesting that that it prompts these thoughts because I, I suppose in my mind I kept comparing this with with other historical fiction that I'd read and mm. was kept thinking, you know, this always happens. You you can't, as the author, avoid your contemporary sensitivity. You can't avoid that. That's what you bring to the to the writing. Um, and you can't, if you try to do the other thing, you end up with a sort of pastiche. And, mm. you know, pastiche is funny, but he, it definitely isn't pastiche. In the same way, Hilary Mantel's style is absolutely not Tudor, you know, but it for some reason it really works because... It's contemporary perceptions turned into language that is sufficiently of the period for it to feel, for it to not disturb your understanding that you're in a different period of history. But uh, but the the perception and the kind of the sensitivity, the conscience, the consciousness, if you like, is mm. is of the period, and um, that's I, that's what I felt about him when you said it was written in 1969. I thought, yeah, that's that's absolutely what they were thinking about 1969. So if you were going to pick up another historical fiction novel, where might you go next? I'm going to read um, The Mirror and the Light. Um, that, that is what, that, I've just stood up to get it. That's my next plan. Uh, all, um, yeah, 800 pages of it. Um, and The yeah. Mirror and the Light is what sort of a book? Uh, it's the third volume of the trilogy about Thomas Cromwell, written by Hilary Mantel, who won the Booker Prize for the previous two. And, and Jeremy, are you are you going down the paper route or are you going down the audiobook route? I'm going to go down the paper route like I did with the other two because you can take it at your own pace. That's the difference between the, the audio and the red. Yeah, you can you can absorb it at your own rate. And sometimes it's much better to listen. So there's a bit at the end of... Um, Bringing Up the Bodies, which is her description of the execution of Anne Boleyn, which is mm. absolutely chilling to listen to in a way that I hadn't remembered from when I'd read it. Um, but there are other things, particularly the minor characters, where you don't kind of get enough of enough time really to sort of absorb who they are and and that's why i'm you know i'm going to read in paper apart from anything else i got it for my birthday so <laughs> i have to don't i <laughs> right you kind of do i mean I'm, I'm i'm guessing jeremy that you're not about to to embark on a on a read of all remaining 20 patrick o'brien novels in a tearing hurry no, I, but I will definitely. I'm. I will definitely have a go at the next one, particularly if it's a bit more shorebound, and maybe there are there are a few women characters. <laughs> I think that's a fair description of post captain. What do you think, Mike? Oh, absolutely. And I, I was going to say, and if you're a, a willing man, Jeremy, 
give a try to the next two. We're setting up HMS Surprise to come after Post Captain now. And some people will say, you know, try HMS Surprise first. And if you like it, go back and read the first two. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll have a go. But as I say, it'll be 800 pages later than today, if you know what I mean. (laughs) Right. It'll be somewhere on the other side of the mirror and the light. It will. Yes, exactly. So, Jeremy, thanks very much for joining us. It was really great to have you with us on The Lubber's Hole. But I think the important thing about The the Lubber's Hole is that the, what he says about it is that the experts don't go the obvious way into the lubber's hole. They go the roundabout route. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Clinging to the futtock shrouds. Anyway, it's been great fun. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jeremy. Thank you to you too as well, Jeremy. Lots and lots of fun. So now it's time for us to take a short break. We're going to be right back in a few moments. Welcome back. You're with Ian and Mike listening to The Lubber's Hole. This is a moment when I'd like to remind you all that we would love to hear from you on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com forward slash Lubber's Hole. On Twitter, our Twitter account is at Hole Lubbers. We're also distributing the podcast via some new channels these days. We've got the podcast as well as appearing on Google. We're on Spotify, and we're also beginning to broadcast some of the podcasts on YouTube. So if you know someone whose favorite channel is one of those who hasn't accessed the podcast yet, please feel free to share and spread the word. And many thanks to you listeners who have been reaching out and asking to have the podcast available on these other channels. We hear you, and we're delighted that you're listening. We certainly are. So it was really great to talk about these novels from the perspective of someone like Jeremy, who's new to the canon and new to Patrick O'Brien. We need to get back in to HMS Surprise now. Mike, the focus at the beginning of this novel is really on Stephen, isn't it? Right. Neither Jack or Stephen is in the scene, but Stephen is the vital character being talked about here. And sadly, Jack gets mentioned only later in the scene. And the mention of his name only contributes to the reversal of the good fortune we left at the end of Post Captain. Definitely. So just scroll down. I think we were talking last time about the Wikipedia summary for the uh, the action with the Spanish treasure fleet. Scroll down to the bottom paragraph of that and you'll discover the reversal that overcomes Stephen and Jack. And it's Stephen that learns of it first, initially indirectly via his contacts in the world of intelligence. But let's go back for a second the, the the novel actually begins in a meeting of the Naval Intelligence Committee um, with Stephen's mentor, protector, handler, Sir Joseph Blaine, doing his darndest to try and stop this terrible decision that's coming, which is going to be to revoke the idea of prize money status for the Spanish treasure that was captured on the basis that it was captured in time of peace and therefore is droits of the Admiralty. Yeah. Is it, and I'm not sure, I'm wondering, is it the Naval Intelligence Committee or perhaps the bigger Admiralty Board? You know, we've got this new First Lord, apparently a change in the ruling party. 
And now in this admiralty meeting, there are plain ordinary citizens in attendance. No place to mention or expose an intelligence agent. And from a from an intelligence point of view, preserving the the security of Stephen as a source is a potential disaster. And I'm I'm interested in the, how quickly, at least in two books, if you can call that quickly, Stephen's matured, both in reality and as a character presented to us from being a, a fairly low key individual, you know, a uh, an impoverished former physician, impoverished natural philosopher, cast ashore in Mahon. He got recruited, I, I think, not as part of the main action, but it's clear that he went from being an occasional casual advisor about Catalan affairs to something a bit more established in the world of the Admiralty. And now here at the beginning of HMS Surprise, he's clearly an individual whose reports are read at the highest level. And we, we saw that at the end of Post Captain, and whose identity and status as an intelligence agent is important to the realm, but is also potentially at risk when he's talked about widely by people who are who are well known. And interestingly, the his character as a as a philosopher has grown as well. Maybe it was there all along, but we see that Stephen Maturin goes along to a meeting of the Royal Society and he's likely to find a place in the proceedings of the Royal Society, which for a natural philosopher is a pretty big deal. So I was just struck by yes, sitting back thinking, okay, beginning of the third novel we can't any longer say that Stephen Maturin is the poor relation in any way in terms of his profile or his status in the world. He's absolutely a player on the stage from a politics and an intelligence and a science and a philosophy point of view. Yeah, it, it's fascinating, especially the scene at the Royal Society. You know, we see Stephen in a brand new way, but in the midst of all this, Patrick O'Brien in his own way still takes this scene at the Royal Society and, and turns it into something fitting for an episode from the office you know sir joseph who's, who's yeah he, he wants to avoid stephen in public so he declines to read his paper so another member jumps up to read what's supposed to be his finding on some bug and quickly veers off to his favorite topic not at all the topic he's supposed to be reading about about the migration of swallows uh this much to the chagrin of the audience and it really sounded a lot like a lot of corporate meetings I think we could both relate to where somebody <laughs> yeah and you know it makes you wonder too who did Patrick O'Brien see as his readers you know did you know can you see Patrick O'Brien sitting up at night or perhaps talking with his editor saying you know I know I know we're going to go after people who are really interested in naval history who also love uh, biology and zoology and botany, these natural philosopher types. <laughs> well, he's drawn his niche very, very narrowly. I think it's fair to say if that's the case. But I, I think he's made a character in, in Maturin that he thinks everybody will be interested in. Yeah. Who doesn't want to hear about um, you know a, a botanist spy? We've had every other kind of spy. Let's hear about a botanist spy. And if Patrick O'Brien can do a good job in making the botany convincing and the spy stuff convincing, then we've got a really unique character for us to want to follow along. Yeah, yeah. And, and that unique character's cover may have been blown with these public members attending the meeting. Um, and infuriatingly, that's aggravated by Admiral Hart, our old nemesis from Master and Commander, who continues to be a thorn in Jack's side. But meanwhile, the, the earlier meeting with the, the, uh, the Admiralty Intelligence Group, that's 
is a real potential disaster for Stephen. It, Sir Joseph Blaine takes it very seriously. Stephen has to take it, well, at least a little seriously, although he's, he seems at the beginning, I think, to sort of poo-poo the suggestion that his that he's been made and that his cover is blown. And he's quite happy to go off on, on a new mission to go ashore to Menorca and you know, make inquiries of his own and exploit the, the contacts that he has in the world of, of Catalan independence. Yeah, Stephen seems to think he can outrun the news getting to France and Spain, given the people that yep. Sir Joseph had named that were in attendance at that meeting. Absolutely. And I wonder if that's the the undoing of many an intelligence officer, that slight excess of confidence and kind of daring. Maybe we're going to learn about that. Oh, neat. You know, it's it's interesting because with this world of intelligence, as we learn a little bit later, you know, Stephen finds out and reports back to Sir Joseph that there's at least one person, perhaps more, that are acting as either double agents or on the payroll of France. So, you know, really wonder if that uh, hubris, if that daring are going to uh, pay off for Stephen. So his ability to outrun the news is, is going to be critical, and that's going to catch up with him at some point. Again, we think there's a there's a known or written about or believed connection in O'Brien's life that he was involved in intelligence operations in World War II. And just like a John le Carré novel, I think this idea of there being one or more or several shadowy double agents that could betray Stephen and his identity, I think that's something that we're going to come back to. But I want to dip into the conversations that Stephen was having he did have a lovely, very brother-sister type conversation with Sophie, which showed a lot about their two characters. He also had a very candid conversation with Sir Joseph Blaine as he was learning about this revelation of his identity to higher-ups in the Admiralty. And we got something that I love about Stephen's dialogue. Our friend Jeremy said earlier on that O'Brien communicates a lot of the story and communicates a lot of character through dialogue. And one of the things about Stephen is when he gets riled up, he can come out with these long series of adjectives in a big, big complex put down of a character. So he's talking about Mrs. Williams. That's Jack's prospective mother-in-law, the mother of Sophie and the aunt of uh, Diana Villiers. And he decides to denounce Mrs. Williams. I counted them six adjectives. He says she's a deeply stupid, griping, illiberal, avid, tenacious, pinch fist lickpenny, a sordid lickpenny and a shrew. And we could do the uh, the Google engram test. I bet that shrew is a fairly apposite, early 19th century word. And he goes on, doesn't he? And he, he, he's not done denouncing this woman to Sir Joseph. He says, this, this is the most unromantic beast that ever urged its squat, thick bulk across the face of the protecting earth. Well, Stephen, how do you really feel? <laughs> but maybe we're seeing that in his growing character as an intelligence agent, he's going to find it more and more difficult to be candid with people. He's already got into trouble with not being able to be candid with his best friend, Jack Aubrey. And it must be liberating to be able to say what's really on your mind about someone's character in a really unguarded conversation with a fellow spy like Sir Joseph Blake. Yeah, it's interesting because Stephen Matron tries so often in his day-to-day life to be truthful, but he finds as an agent, you know, he has to deceive people sometimes. And I, I, I think in post-captain, we remember at the end, he told Jack, you know, I don't like anybody bringing this to my attention. Oh, yes. And he is this just fascinating character, this amazing combination of a gracious, you know, 
really very proper socially at times, other times an absolute mess, you know, a genius, but an Einstein that's a little bit like a flake, you know, sometimes forgetting his pants. And, you know, at any given moment, a really cantankerous curmudgeon. Um, We've got these, uh, his discussion with Sir Joseph about Mrs. Williams. And then a little bit later, you know, Mrs. Williams has intercepted one of Sophie's letters, which she thinks is from Jack, but it's actually from Stephen. And she's reading it through. And Stephen is giving her his compliments and best wishes and asking after her mother and saving money. He's so glad to hear they're going to be in Bath. He hopes to call upon her and Mrs. Williams to say, what a wonderful man. Wouldn't he be a great husband for Cecilia? You know, leave them alone together when we get to Bath. So Stephen, a man of all kinds of things here. <laughs> it's great. Now, Meanwhile, all this action's going on ashore in London and uh, you know in in southern southern England between Stephen and the authorities in London and the Williams family. Jack, meanwhile, is at sea. He's still the acting captain of HMS Lively. This very professionally well handled, very uh, immaculately turned out frigate. Bad news is they're not really doing frigate duty in the way that Aubrey likes it. They're they're blockading Toulon, and this is. Grim, monotonous, hard grinding service. This is the kind of service that was the feature of lots and lots of the lives, I think, of naval servicemen on both sides in the Napoleonic Wars. C.S. Forrester spent quite a lot of time putting Hornblower in blockade duty, and Patrick O'Brien chooses not to. And I guess you can see why, because it is monotonous in the end. So he chooses his moments carefully for telling us just how grim this blockading service really is. I, I really like the description of uh, a midshipman on lookout duty or somewhere up in the, in the top. And they express all of their their starvation and their hunger and their deprivation and their sense of isolation from the world by talking about food. And one of them says, oh, sausage. Sausage, he cried above the mistral as he stared. Hot, crisp, squirting with juice as you bite them. Bacon, mushrooms. And we, like, we never hear from these midshipmen again, <laughs> but they play this really lovely role in saying this is what people were longing for. And it, it's beautifully written, very, very poetic use of the, the words as well. Yeah, I love that quote with the sausages. I suspect that some of us uh, in the midst of quarantine here who are having a hard time getting out to grocery stores and that, it sounded like some of our wishes as well. It comes right out of the the mouth of a midshipman, you know, and these midshipmen, minor characters, again, that O'Brien does such a wonderful job bringing to life. Um, and none more minor in Jack's eyes than a midshipman. They're not, not fit for man or beast. Jack remembers coming up as a midshipman. Actually, you know, as we're going to find out, we're going to reminisce a little bit about his midshipman life in this book. And even though the lively where he is, as, as you point out, Ian, in this blockading, you know, even their midshipmen still have a lot to learn. Mind you, he's, he's doing his best to correct that, though, isn't he? Yeah, it's fascinating. He's, he's acting as teacher. He's also sitting in on their classes. And, and I love this part where, as he's attending specifically their, their navigation classes, he uh, is, uh, and, and getting impacted by this lively atmosphere of more scientific, business-like, um, O'Brien calls it a, a very Whig-like, you know, efficient ship. Uh, <laughs> he finds himself now learning these, you know, what he calls the principles of spherical trigonometry. 
And he's really delighted that these things that were so hard for him as a youth, now as an adult and kind of seeing the purpose of it, he's really getting it and, and thrilled with it. And his being thrilled with himself at learning this immediately brings to mind Stephen. And he says, oh, how amazed Stephen will be, he reflected, how I shall commit the philosopher over him and how I wish the old soul were here. You know, it, it just reminds me, you know, we all want to be, we want witnesses for our lives. We want to be appreciated, especially by our good friends and our loved ones. So true. Oh, it's very sweet. Very, very sweet. And I love that Patrick O'Brien has added this as a piece of Jack's character. It doesn't necessarily play a part in the story. It adds an extra sort of wrinkle to the portrait of Jack Aubrey. Oh, he's a late developer in maths. But you can see that in, I guess, he must be in, in maturity slash early middle age. How many of us have not learned a, a new branch of some subject or other or acquired a new hobby or acquired a new kind of kink? And that makes him more interesting than just a cardboard cutout sword wielding action hero. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's now an action hero. Uh, who can navigate a lot better, which he's going to need to be able to do right. <laughs> later in this in this novel. So it seems like the whole atmosphere of the lively is is really good for him. So he's able to get from point A to point B really effectively. He knows the Western Mediterranean really, really well. And he gets the chance to do one last bit of detached duty, which almost seems like, you know, Jack Aubrey can roll up his sleeves, lead the slightly pedestrian, but but well-polished crew of the Lively into some real action ashore. He does this raid in a town called Port Vendre. And I can claim that uh, about seven or eight months ago, I was in Port Vendre and I was in Port Vendre because I was having a vacation staying in the village of Collier. And I love the fact that the village of Collier, without being named, actually shows up in the story. Um, if you go on Tom Horn's um, cannonade.net website, the Patrick O'Brien mapping project, um, he also pointed out that the village that was visited by a raiding party as kind of a distraction or a faint move, um, it's probably Collier. It's almost certainly Collier, the next bay around from Port Vendre. Exactly. This is Patrick O'Brien's home when he was writing these books. <laughs> it is. That's right. Collier, I also think, might be partly a model in Patrick's mind for the harbour, the British harbour of Shelmuston, which is fictitious, that plays a big part in the later stages. It's a little medieval, unspoiled fishing port. Wouldn't ever have been a big deal for commercial shipping. Wouldn't ever have been a big deal for the military. And there are plenty of big ports on the south coast of France that have always been military ports, like Toulon and Marseille, for example. But Collier is a little old fishing port with a little breakwater and a little lovely little harbour and a castle. And it's very easy, from my experience standing on the shore of Collier, very easy to imagine that you're that you're still back in the early 19th century. And it must have been really easy for O'Brien living there in the 1960s to imagine himself back in the early 19th century. It has a Catalan essence to it. You know, this is the culturally and almost linguistically Catalan part of France, just over the border from the border with Catalonia, which is now part of Spain. Um, I've got a picture of Collier on my wall, and I will tweet that out um, on the Twitter account later on this week. Now, it's not just a travelogue, though. Jack is writing home, describing in quite light tones to Sophie the action that's taken place and how he put together this raiding party and their 
various kinds of distractions and feints and manoeuvres. And this is almost a regular day at the office for Jack Aubrey, but it's quite a bloody action in the end. And we have this really chilling description of the the action of the, the non-Europeans, the particularly Chinese and Malay crew members who go along on this raiding expedition. And Jack's not really sure of how they're going to behave but it turns out that they really know how to behave. Yeah, and as they pull up to the enemy boat, you know, they give a cheer, but everybody else is quiet. But they dive in, they swim underneath, they come up around the sides, and there's this incredible uh, stealth and killing efficiency as what are probably former pirates, this Chinese and Malay crew, um, they, they both kindle Jack's admiration and, and sicken him. O'Brien writes, belay that sheet there, down with her helm, prisoners to the forehatch. And Bondin's shocked reply, there ain't no prisoners, sir. And O'Brien then describes this deck, you know, it's bright red. The Chinamen are squatting in pairs, methodically stripping the dead. The Malays are piling the heads in neat heaps like round shot. Uh, And it goes on and on here. Um... Jack is thinking back to some pretty uh, dramatic action scenes in his past, but O'Brien says he felt his stomach close and heave. The taking was professional, as professional as anything could be, and it sickened him with his trade. This is one of the first of several glimpses that we get into about Jack's reaction to this personal and interpersonal, directly interpersonal violence. Um, And, you know, it's funny because we're learning about this, as you pointed out, and we're learning about this as Jack's writing a letter to Sophie, and he doesn't know quite how to express this. And he realizes he doesn't want to tell Sophie anything about this, that, you know, for her, life at sea should be pretty good. Maybe there's some wounds in a battle, but you can't see them. They really are just numbers on a casualty list. And while he wants to tell Sophie this, maybe yeah. Jack wants to believe some of this himself. Really striking. He's, we've had all of this action so far with uh, the Polycrest and the Sophie and the Lively, but it's this really kind of cold, hand-to-hand personal combat with real callousness that sets him sets him back on his heels. Yeah, yeah. So Jack has a really strong reaction. And then later... Uh, on the boat, somebody else has a very strong reaction, but of a different flavor altogether. Well, the other person who's shocked and takes it personally, but on a completely different level, is preserved Killick, the captain steward. I've, I've, I love this speech, and I've wanted to say it out loud to somebody for years and years and years. So I'm going to say, this is this is Killick sorting through, cleaning up and repairing the, the captain's gear after this rather bloody action. It's a coat torn in five places. Cutlass slash in a forearm, which, how can I ever darn that? And bullet hole all singed, never get the powder marks out. Breaches all a who and all this nasty blood everywhere. Like you've been wallowing in a lay stall. What would Miss say? I don't know, sir. God strike me blind. Epaulets act. Fair act to pieces. Oh, Jesus, what a life. So I just love the way uh, Killick's character comes through in the grumpy, grouchy, cussed things that he says. Yeah. So Jack's gone through this experience that he's recounting to Sophie, and he's really hopeful and elated, as you say, that he's going to encounter his old friend. He gets to sail to Menorca, and Jack's really playing down the fact that Menorca is now a French possession. 
Of course, we've had the Peace of Amiens. So whereas in Master and Commander, Mahon was a British port, it's now in the hands of the French and Stephen's been ashore. The Lively, having had its run ashore and its cutting out expedition, is detached to go to sail off and on, off the shore of Mahon and to pick Stephen up on a beach. And Jack's walking up and down this beach, not particularly worried about where Stephen might be, not expecting him to be on time, really lighthearted at the idea of meeting his friend after quite a long um, spell apart. Yeah, and it's so different. In an earlier novel, we knew Jack really didn't have the appreciation at that point for Stephen's capabilities. And now he figures that Stephen is just as good on the land as an agent as he is in the surgery. And he's not worried, but it might not turn out as well this time. And Jack's happy expectations are going to be overturned. Jack, although he's begun to realize that Stephen's a very resourceful fellow, maybe even plays that too high in his mind. He has no idea of the disaster that's coming because as he's waiting on the beach in the dark, out of the dark, stumbles this guy Maragal, a local Mahon Catalan activist who mentions a couple of keywords known only to Stephen and says, he's been taken, he's been tortured. Yeah, and Jack's listening to Maragall. He's trying to decide what to do. And O'Brien writes about that Jack, that he has this youthful, playful side, which Sophie loves, you know, this kind of younger side. But he notes that at times like this, nobody looking at Jack would ever believe in that. You know, here's the Jack who is intense. He's plotting strategy. He's ready to go quickly into action. He's facing calamities that require an immediate response. Um, and, And this Jack is not that perhaps a little bit inept Jack that we sometimes see on land. So Jack's ready to go. The Lively's officers you know, come to Jack and they really want to be part of this mission. Um, they're fond of Stephen. Uh, you know, they, they really now have a great fondness for Jack, but Jack won't risk them on this personal mission uh, with his, his very fast and quickly unfolding plan. You know, Jack, thinks nothing about laying down his own life for Stephen, but is not going to pull everybody else into this. And, you know, O'Brien uses many biblical references. He doesn't use one here, but I know for me, it came to mind this, you know, greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's absolutely where this moment in the story is, isn't it? This is nothing to do with high strategy or military life. This is one man saying, my friend's in danger and it's worth my life to go to go help him. Yeah, and, and, and you see this. It's like he's looking at Marigal thinking, you know, can I trust him? And, and I think Marigal even at one point says, you know, you're wondering if you can trust me or something. And Jack says, look, Stephen trusts you. That's all I need to know. And it really, this, this bond of friendship that O'Brien infuses throughout this canon is just amazing it's wonderful to read about isn't it mind you we can't stay with just one friend looking after another friend the whole time because very quickly and marigal i think points out that for this to be safe for everybody who's left behind in the world of intelligence and everybody who's left behind in menorca we need to make this a rescue of everybody so that steven's identity as an agent can be kept hopefully under wraps as it wasn't in the Admiralty meeting in London. So we need to make this a general jailbreak. And Jack realizes this after not too long, and he's maturing into his understanding of what kind of world it is, this world of intelligence that Stephen operates in. 
Yeah, and it's very different by virtue of, of essentially, we can't leave anybody behind. We can't, you know, right. we can't have anybody that can identify Stephen as the agent or the fact that they came to get Stephen. And so this situation, um, this scene evolves, it's fast, it's brutal, it's written in the first person. And it's another time that this personal violence really gets to Jack. You know, Jack has this way of treating fellow officers. And on the one hand, he can't treat them necessarily this way. But on the other hand, you know, he also is seeing officers who were established officers and realizing what they've been doing here that, you know, whereas Jack wants to be, you know, a man of honor, what he finds here is really a lot of horror. Yeah. And he's really disdainful and angry of this French officer who momentarily leans on his his honor and says, I can't write a false letter to my commanding officer. That would be against my honor. And Jack is looking at the instruments of torture in the same room where this officer has been operating and says, don't talk to me about your honor. And then, of course, there's going to be violence meted out by Jack and his colleagues and that's a different, cold, impersonal kind of violence as well. That's that's new for Jack. Yeah, once again, this this close personal violence really disturbs Jack. The torture uh, that was carried on by officers against other officers, the swift violence needed in the rescue, uh, you know, not ending up with kind of the ceremonial exchange of swords, but ending up with everybody dead there. Yeah. Uh, that you know, leaving no prisoners as. As he takes Stephen back to the ship, Jack says, O'Brien writes, God knows I should do the same again, said Jack, leaning on the helm to close her, the keen spray stinging his tired, reddened eyes. But I feel I need the whole sea to clean me. And may he get it. I think Patrick O'Brien has that in store for us. So I think that's going to be where we'll pick it up next time. It's time for Jack to explore beyond the Western Med. It's time for Jack and Stephen to recover themselves a little bit. And maybe it's time for us to pick back up with the ladies on shore and see what's going on there. We'll find out next time. What do you think, Mike? Should we have next time, perhaps, a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Oh, yes, with all my heart. than that i like that i could do that (laughs) yeah that's right